to Rising. We have an unbelievable show for you today. I don't even believe it. Brianna, <laughs> make me a believer. What's going on? I'll try my best, Robbie. Uh, well, we'll have a fantastic guest coming up discussing the root causes of why there's so many Venezuelan immigrants fleeing the country in the first place. And we will dig into Robbie's new reporting on the end of federal vaccine and mask mandates at a Louisiana school. But first, yesterday, the Federal Reserve set in motion another rate hike in the fight against inflation. The Fed raised its key interest rate by 0.75 percentage points for the third time this year, which some say could break the dam on a recession. Here's Fed Chairman Jerome Powell making the announcement and signaling that more hikes are likely to come. The FOMC raised its policy interest rate by three-quarters of a percentage point. And we anticipate that ongoing increases will be appropriate. We are moving our policy stance purposefully to a level that will be sufficiently restrictive to return inflation to 2%. Bank CEOs balked at the aggressive price hikes while testifying on Capitol Hill and warned that the increases could actually cause a slowdown in the economy and could put millions out of work. As Senator Elizabeth Warren said, she fears Powell is on the path to increasing unemployment in the labor market. And while Powell has signaled more hikes to get inflation down, Fed officials forecast that rates will rise to 4.4% at the end of this year and believe that the rate of inflation will return to their goalpost of 2% by 2025, which is still a long ways off. Yeah, and look, this discussion about how they are are afraid it's going to push unemployment. There was an explicit commitment earlier this year that that was the goal here, that unemployment was going to bring uh, inflation down. And so we have been having this ongoing conversation, particularly on the left, about whether or not, quote unquote, saving the economy must come at the expense of the lowest tier of American workers, of working people and working families, or whether or not there are alternative ways to go about doing this. I've spoken to a number of progressive economists on my own show, and we've spoken to some here about alternatives but it is distressing that there seems to be this openness about pursuing a strategy that is going to be so detrimental for workers, especially ahead of midterms. Yeah, I mean, look, there's there's no, this is not good. We don't want um, unemployment to rise, obviously. I mean, we want to go, some of us want to go back to the pre-pandemic economy times where we had um, a very full, very robust employment and uh, a very healthy economy and low inflation. Um, It should be possible to accomplish all of these things at once. The, The government you know, is no stranger to solving, trying to solve one problem, not really solving it, and making a bunch of others' problems worse. So, look, I, I think it's not necessarily a great thing, but we do have to get inflation under control. Um, you know, one way to do that is simply, or one way to, even if we don't get in inflation under control on its own, we need to fix the gas prices, the food prices, all of that stuff through um, through different policy, through ending the Ukraine war right. um, and, and whatever else the administration can do, because, yeah, just, you know, just trying to reduce inflation and causing unemployment to rise again would, yeah, I under, absolutely understand why that's not really making the situation better overall. Yeah, that's a really great point. What do we do about the cost of food and goods? Uh, founder and compound capital, uh, founder and comp, of compound, sorry, capital advisors laid out this comparison. Two years ago, a 30-year mortgage rate was 2.87%, and the median home price in the U.S. was $310,000. Compared to today, where a 30-year mortgage rate is 6.02% and the median home price is $390,000, which means a $16,000 increase in down payments and a nearly 82% increase in monthly 
payments. An op-ed over at Bloomberg predicts that this market volatility will largely distinguish the economic winners and losers of the decade into two groups, those who bought homes before 2022 and those who didn't, contributing to the widening economic inequality between homeowners and renters. The financial outlets also report that U.S. income inequality rose to record, uh, broke records under President, Ob uh, President Biden, according to the Census Bureau. U.S poverty climbed for a second year straight in 2021 and household income slightly dipped. Last year, 37.9 million people were in poverty, which is about 3.9 million more than in 2019. So it's, uh, it's, not a, it's not a pretty picture. So first and foremost, Robbie, can millennials catch a break? I mean, yeah, the, the no, we're subtext. the most persecuted generation. We we graduated, uh, you know, yes. into the recession. Um, yep. I graduated in 2010. Uh, oh, you, times. You, well, you graduated in like I graduated from college in 2007, yeah. started law school a month too. after the, the market yeah. crashed. And, you know, everything has, we've been off to the races since then. And not to mention, obviously, the way that COVID has now affected the generation coming up behind us. When they say things like the have and have nots are now going to be divided up between those who bought houses um, before and those who are buying houses after this crisis, what you're really saying is that entire generational cohorts are being locked out of the American dream, not to mention all the people, obviously, from older generations who are locked out as well. And since we've based our entire uh, middle class uh, status in this country, your ability to attain middle class status on this one economic prong of home ownership, it's very curious to see what's going to happen as as interest rates continue to be driven up, as people are increasingly locked at, out, and as rents start to increase at a dramatic level, before the cause of renters was not so much of a central bedrock middle class cause in the national discourse, but as increasing portions of Americans are long-term renters for life. As when you talk about middle class families, we, we were talking more about renters and not people paying mortgages. I'm curious as to whether or not we're going to have a different kind of discourse coming out of both parties. Yeah, that's true. Although, to be clear, millennials disproportionately prefer to live in areas of the country where where renting is more affordable than buying or where buying has just gotten Well, that's a relationship, though, isn't brunch. it right? You know, I would be happy to live in various parts of the country if there were the same kind of job opportunities right. there, if they were, were pay was as high there. Sometimes I think people talk about the idea of being able to just randomly move to the middle of Oklahoma and take advantage of a $200,000 you know, house there um, without thinking about whether or not you can get a job there that yeah. even enables enables you to keep well, up with that Well, but the rise of virtual work is making that for sure. a, a lot more possible for a lot of jobs. Um, and, uh, and, and yeah, so that's, you know, that's a good option for, for more people should probably do that. Yeah. But also it would, uh, the extreme like political polarization that are like all like-minded people on like the blue side have, have uh, coalesced in cities that uh, from a tactical standpoint should spread out the democratic vote to more places like yeah. Oklahoma. Look, that's why my mom remote work, the story that exactly yeah. that you just told us why she just moved back home to Cleveland, Ohio after 20 odd years in New York City. So uh, I know some millennials who moved to who moved to Ohio during the pandemic. <laughs> All right, maybe Tim Ryan uh, stands a chance. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about that, but uh, no, I, I well, he stands. A, I, I, I'm looking. I so I just finally pulled up the um, the uh, the map where you make, get to make your predictions for mm -hmm. who's going to win the Senate. I, I'm still putting that one very much in the Republican 
box, but I don't know. We'll see. Look, I was a big Morgan Harper supporter. That was the progressive candidate in the primary. And if Tim Ryan doesn't, in fact, pull it out, and the argument was that Democrats had to rally behind him because he was the most electable candidate, I wonder what that does say about the messaging progressives can advance for themselves next time we're in a primary situation like this. We do have to, we have to make our maps before Election Day. <laughs> All right. I'm very competitive about this. And I'm looking forward to hearing what's on your radar coming up next. Brianna, what's on your radar? Well, has an unholy alliance between the left flank of the Democratic Party and Republican leadership brought us to the brink of a government shutdown? Well, that's Joe Manchin's take on Bernie Sanders' refusal to vote for a much-anticipated permitting bill, the language of which dropped just yesterday evening. Allow me to catch you up. You probably remember that Democrats passed the Inflation Reduction Act last month. It has little to nothing to do with inflation, and it does the absolute minimum in terms of cutting the kinds of gas emissions that are driving weather events, like the hurricane that just knocked out all the power in Puerto Rico. But despite that, Democrats have been crowing about how the bill is going to save the planet and, importantly, Democratic midterm chances. But Democrats were only able to secure all 50 Democratic votes by sweetening the deal for West Virginia's Joe Manchin. Remember, it was Manchin and Kirsten Sinema who have been holding up much of Biden's agenda for two years now. It was Joe Manchin who tanked much more substantive climate efforts that existed in earlier iterations of BBB. And let's not forget, Despite hailing from one of the poorest states in the union, it was Joe Manchin that killed the very popular child tax credit that had halved child poverty. Now, in order to get him to finally sign on to the Inflation Reduction Act, Senate leader Chuck Schumer offered Manchin sweetheart deal, a separate bill that was, suppo was supposed to pass separately. Legislation inclined to make Manchin happy. Now, we knew shockingly little about this giveaway to the West Virginia yacht-dwelling coal baron until yesterday, when the deal was dropped at the end of the workday. But we've now confirmed that the bill is designed to make Manchin and the fossil fuel companies that pay him very, very happy. Now, the latter have explicitly lauded the bill, which stands to fast-track the Mountain Valley pipeline and speed up the permitting of energy-related projects. Why should you care? Well, the Mountain Valley Pipeline, if completed, would extract an amount of gas that if burned would equal 23 new coal plants or 19 million gas-powered cars on the road. It would wipe out much of the lauded climate progress made in the Inflation Reduction Act and edge Americans toward having to pay billions in climate-related repairs over the next decades. Moreover, while some corporate Democrats are embracing the permitting provisions, arguing that they will enable green energy projects to be fast-tracked, according to The Lever, legal experts said major questions remain about whether the bill would fix the actual causes of delay in permitting for energy projects, such as federal agency capacity and state and local opposition to renewables. According to reporting from The Lever, the primary function of the bill is to speed up fossil fuel projects like the Mountain Valley Pipeline, which Appalachians, by the way, have been protesting on the basis that it threatens their water supply and would displace local communities. 
The pipeline would stretch 303 miles across the Appalachian Mountains, farmland, and a thousand plus streams, rivers, and wetlands connected to its water table. It's a region pr prone to mudslides that could threaten the integrity of the pipes themselves. And even under the best of conditions, pipes just leak. They do. Since 1986, pipeline accidents have spilled an average of 76,000 barrels per year. That's 3 million gallons per year. Here's what a local activist had to say last week on Democracy Now! Currently, the best way to describe the stage of the Mountain Valley Pipeline is segmented all along those 303 miles. For example, the first incomplete stream crossing that they come to is less than three-quarters of a mile from milepost zero on the project. So what is remaining is some of the most difficult and challenging work and all of the heavy construction work adjacent to, around, under streams, wetlands, rivers, creeks. Um, and Dr. Cavalier has described it well. These are water sources that feed our communities, um, feed our households, that people use to take care of their livestock. Um, and all of that runs downstream, um, destroys habitat, uh, and puts people's health and safety at risk. To his point, these spills not only harm the environment, they can cause heart problems, alter your DNA, cause neurological impairment, and affect the endocrine system. So this is the background for this fight. Joe Manchin basically only agreed to sign on to the Inflation Reduction Act if he got his pet project approved. Damn the environment and damn the health and well-being of the people in his state. But here's the twist. Bernie Sanders says he won't vote for it. And over in the House, Ro Khanna is standing with him. So, Manchin and Schumer, the number one and two recipients of utility cash in Congress, by the way, decided to play hardball by attaching the bill to a continuing resolution, basically a funding bill that's required to keep the government going. If the side deal gets voted down, the government shuts down. They are basically playing a game of chicken with Bernie Sanders, putting him in a position to take the heat for a government shutdown if he stands firm over this side deal. And Manchin's words, I'm not shutting, down the uh, shutting the government down. I'm voting for it. Anyone who votes against it is voting to shut the government down. But let's be honest about what's really happening here. Schumer and Manchin, who accepted $250,000 from the very company that stands to profit from the Mountain Valley Pipeline permitting, are prior prioritizing a kickback to their donors over the American people they represent. They could have put the bill up for a vote independently without attaching it to the money needed to fund the government, but they've created a hostage situation, hoping that the corporate media will back them in their vilification of independent Senator Bernie Sanders. All that remains to be seen is if Bernie Sanders will, in fact, shoot the hostage. I think he should. Just watch how edgy and irritated Bernie's got Manchin and Schumer in this clip. Schumer won't budge from a pact he made with Joe Manchin to expedite energy permitting in the upcoming Band-Aid spending bill, called a CR. Are there any circumstances whatsoever that that could be taken out of the CR? I you told you. Two, but you said that for two weeks. I'm just getting I'm clear. saying I'll say it for two weeks in one day. Next. Republicans could vote no because the deal secured Manchin support for the climate tax and health package. Progressives oppose it because it cuts against their position on climate change. I've never seen stranger bedfellows than Bernie Sanders 
and the uh, um, the uh, extreme liberal left siding up with the Republican leadership. It's like a revenge politics. <laughs> a revenge politics. They are pressed. They can't believe that Bernie would actually, for once, stand up to them. And hey, maybe they're right. Maybe he'll ultimately bend the knee. Historically, the only people who ever seem to hold the line and kill legislation like this are corporatists beholden, beholden to donors, people like Joe Manchin. Progressives typically fold, claiming that getting something is better than getting nothing at all. It's sort of pathetic, and it's part of why there's such a gap between what most Americans want and what we actually get out of politics. The people who ostensibly went to Congress to speak for us settle for crumbs and then say they're doing it for our benefit. But maybe, just maybe, this time is different. Climate change, after all, presents a threat level that is truly cataclysmic in its nature, and we've run out of time. Incrementalist arguments about how we'll get them on the next round just don't fly anymore. If Bernie holds the line, it won't just force a government shutdown. It may force a much-needed conversation about how corporate parties, swimming in dirty energy money, are acting in the short-term interests of corporations instead of the people who live in their districts. And conservatives better listen up, too. Younger Republicans are vulnerable to a leftward shift on key issues like abortion and, yes, climate change. 69% of Republicans under 34 care about climate change a great deal or a fair amount. And over 50% of Republicans aged 34 to 54 feel the same way. Might the threat of adding a gas equivalent of 19 million more cars to the roads start to make climate, along with abortion, an issue that turns younger voters back to the Democratic Party or, even better, to third-party alternatives? We'll find out soon enough. What is Bernie more afraid of? A negative media cycle or the thought of his grandchildren growing up in a world with triple-digit temperatures? What are the corporate Democrats more afraid of? Angering their fossil fuel donors or shutting down the government heading into midterms? Now, it's theoretically possible that Republicans might cross the line to help Democrats pass this bill. But so far, they've said they won't, preferring to push their own more aggressive bill. So in all likelihood, it will come down to Bernie, Tim Kaine, and allied progressives in the House. Will they stand firm or will they bend the knee? <laughs> I love the uh, the Game of Thrones graphic there. I thought you might, Robbie. That's point one. <laughs> point two, who's Tim Kaine? <laughs> Never you remember Tim Kaine in the membrane? Never heard of him. <laughs> um, I don't know. It sounds like they should probably just vote to build this pipeline and everything will be fine. Well, it's interesting. I mean, increasingly what we're seeing is that for corporate Democrats to pass their agenda, because there are a handful of progressives in the House and obviously Bernie Sanders and one or two others in the Senate who sometimes will hold firm on these issues, to pass a corporate agenda, Democrats do need Republicans. And I think it's revealing to the public who exactly is on their side and that, that, that the so-called big difference between the Democratic Party and the Republican Party, the Democrats saying, oh, Republicans are anti-democracy, Republicans are ruining the world. Well, if you're constantly allying with corporatists in the Republican Party, if, if you're showing to the public again and again that it's one big corporate party, they're not in it. And it's going to, I think, highlight the reasons why, even though 50 plus, 60, 70, sometimes 80% of Americans agree on basic things like universal health care, common sense, gun reform, common sense environmental um, it, it shifts to green energy, you don't get any of it. Hmm. 
My understanding, though, is specifically, if we're talking about the, the mansion pipeline, mm -hmm. the one he wants to finish the building, Mountain Valley pipeline, I don't think yeah. it's going to have a, a very significant negative impact on the environment, if at all, right? Because, it's, well, it's a natural gas pipeline to, to uh, provide like, largely Virginia, right, and North Carolina, which burn tons of coal. So it's going to be it, it offering them a cleaner energy than the kind that they're using currently. So it's probably going to be close to, I don't know that it'll actually be neutral, but it's probably not quite the hit. I don't think they'll, they'll well, let well, the problem is that it is actually, environmentalists have been very clear about this. A lot of the rhetoric around clean energy is a real misnomer. Uh, the reality is that this is equivalent to opening 23 additional coal plants. That's the emissions equivalent. 23 additional coal plants worth of emissions. And in a world, unless you're a complete and total climate change denial, which even most Republicans are not at this point, we all are experiencing raising temperatures. We all saw the tri triple digit uh, temperatures, particularly in the Southwest over the course of this past summer. We've seen all of these people suffering and dying in other parts of the world, like India, where they have almost every day over the course of a summer in triple digits without the infrastructure to protect them from that kind of a heat. That people don't want that. People don't want to live in that world. And so the, the language around clean energy has been wielded to try to cover up the extent to which there is no such thing as long as we're still creating these sorts of admissions. And the, the scientists are pretty clear on this one. Well, I don't know. I'm seeing a contrary argument. I don't know who's right. I tend to think the smarter way to reduce carbon emissions is some kind of tax on carbon rather than being kind of backward thinking and not like building the infrastructure. Because then we're, we're going to have to just like export this same dirty energy from well, other that's, places, that's which just benefits point. fossil fuel. Um, producers in in other countries, some of those countries being our enemies. Well, that's a great point because what's happening here is the opposite. You're getting kickbacks and in effect legislation that makes it easier for these people to pursue their projects than other people pursuing other kinds of energy projects and projects more generally across the country. So the question that people should be asking is why are we basically subsidizing and making easy and making it easier the, the to green extract energy people get all to sorts extract of kickbacks. If we're talking about if you mean subsidies or well, no, I'm, I'm talking about a company that stands to profit enormously paying representatives, elected representatives in Congress, $250,000 so that they can have a specially crafted bill passed that opens the floodgates and overcomes all of the legal obstacles that every other American would have to go through to build this pipeline through the water table of millions of people who could be negatively affected in the area. There's a lot of clamoring about how much we value West Virginians, we value coal miners, we value the white working class, we value Appalachians, we value these people in this part of the world. They're the ones protesting. They're the ones who are going whose kids have to deal with the, the gross fracking water coming out of their t taps that can be lit on fire and the health consequences that are dramatic. So we'll see how this pans out and whether or not Bernie holding the line mm. actually highlights the people in this area and what they've been trying to tell us for a really long time. I just think there's lots of subsidizing and beneficial for, including for uh, our friend Elon Musk in order to purchase his uh, <laughs> electric Maybe vehicles. your friend, I've never met the man. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much, Brianna. We'll have more Rising right after this. New York Attorney General Letitia James is suing former President Donald Trump 
the Trump Organization, three of his adult children, and others for alleged fraud involving years' worth of false financial statements. According to CNBC, the 220-page lawsuit seeks at least $250 million in damages. It also seeks to permanently bar Trump, his two oldest sons, and Ivanka Trump from serving as an officer of a company in New York, and prohibits the Trump companies named in the suit from doing business in New York State. So we'll have to see how this unfolds. Um, the AG of New York has been after the Trumps for a long time uh, with, you know, a range of success, not not so much success that they were able to do anything actually damaging to the Trump organization or any of the Trumps. So probably there's a high bar to overcome my skepticism and probably anyone's skepticism that this is going to result in anything significant, which is not to say there was there is not there was not fraud in the Trump organization. There's already been, you know, tons of, I mean, there's been tons of reporting, probably more reporting on this than may, almost any other subject by countless news outlets and countless legal actions. And, you know, they've paid out settlements and they've done all sorts of things. So there, I, she could very well be onto something, but, uh, Well, you that's know, the thing. There have been settlements paid out. And, and, and here's what's true. It is both true that Letitia James has been out for Trump for a long time. She basically ran on the promise that she was going to prosecute Trump. However, that being the case and whatever political motives might exist are not in conflict with the idea that Trump may be guilty of things and has certainly been guilty of things in the past. So to add just a little bit of specificity to what's being alleged here, the civil complaint, this is from the Washington Post, cites drastic manipulations of Trump's personal asset portfolio, allegedly at his direction and with the assistance of Trump organization executives, and representations made to financial institutions and insurance car carriers. It alleges that the true value of his assets were concealed through careful doctoring of reports and by changing the methodologies used for various calculations. For example, Mar Lago, a historic site, was valued at $739 million on the basis that there was potential for residential development on the property. In reality, Trump gave up his rights to construct homes there in exchange for sizable tax benefits known as conservation easements, and was truly valued at $75 million, right. not $739 right. million. So this is the kind of thing that's being alleged, that he basically misrepresented his, his worth, which, remember, was a key prong of the liberals' attack against him when he was first running in 2016. They weren't able to dissuade the public for from liking him because of those kinds of things, but they may be able to attach some legal liability Do you know the, here. Have you heard the golf course thing with the fake battle? No. Do you know this? I just came across, <laughs> this is related to nothing. I just came across this story the other day. One of his golf courses, I think it's in Virginia, um, on like, like the 15th hole, there's a, there's a statue commemorating this Civil War battle that took place where all these people died, and it says, you know, we want to honor the people on both sides of this conflict who gave their lives, et cetera. Um, it's like the Battle of like Blood River or something. Here's the thing. There was no such battle. <laughs> there was no battle. There just wasn't a battle. There wasn't a battle. Um, so, so he invented a revolution, uh, sorry, a civil war battle, and then also both sides is it? I, yeah. It's pretty funny. Love, There's no battle. There just was no battle. Um, <laughs> I love that for him. Very On ingrained. the subject of the former president, appeals court panel has granted the Justice Department's request to block aspects of the district court judge Aileen Cannon's ruling that delayed a criminal investigation into the documents seized from former President Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago home, creating a major upset for Trump. The panel ruled that Cannon, a Trump appointee, aired when she temporarily stopped prosecutors from using the roughly 100 classified documents recovered from Trump's estate as part of a criminal inquiry 
inquiry, and this is according to Politico. So this was a three-judge panel. Two of the judge, uh, two of the judges were appointed by Trump. The other was, I believe, an Obama appointee, a Democrat, and it was unanimous that they totally disagreed with the other Trump judge's ruling that there should be a special master and that the FBI can't just kind of look at these documents at uh, at will. Um, and they were pretty scathing. Yeah. And their decision does. My understanding is it does not allow. The, uh, Trump can't appeal to the full panel. What he has to do now is essentially appeal to the Supreme Court, mm. um, which would be it would be interesting if the Supreme Court uh, weighs in. I don't know. I don't know that they would. Um, obviously, yeah. you know, it, just because and this does kind of annoy me in the media when media's like, oh, it's a Trump judge, so you just can't trust them. Trump judges have clashed with Trump's legal theories, time, including at the Supreme Court level, time and time again, relating to all the election stuff and so much else. So you can't. So the fact that the the lower ruling went his way. The higher the, than the next ruling didn't. I mean, that's it's like just part of our legal system, right? It doesn't mean. Well, sure. I, I do think that a, a, a Trump appointed judge ruling against Trump is a as an as an interesting credibility point for those who would be disinclined to believe a ruling against Trump. Um, I don't know that a Trump appointed judge ruling in favor of Trump necessarily proves anything one way or the other. I think you're right there. But what's interesting now that you have Trump judges on either side of the equation is that the particularly scathing nature of this review, basically the issue, you know, the, the argument was Trump is exposed to prejudice. The standard is, you know, is there some prejudice um, if they pursue this investigation and it turns out, you know, that he didn't mm -hmm. do anything wrong. And the argument for prejudice that they make is, well, if he's if they find something and he goes to jail, that will be bad. Like if there's a prosecution, it's prejudicial, which of course would mean every investigation would meet the standard of there being prejudice because obviously that's the whole point of an investigation to find out if somebody has done some, committed some wrongdoing. So it, I, I read some commentary that, that said that the, the, the decision read like a disappointed professor marking up a student's paper uh, because that is how bad the legal it arguments was very harsh. were. It was very harsh. Yeah, well, Trump's lawyer spent weeks pushing for an appointment of a special master to review the documents taken from Mar-a-Lago, and he finally got that with Judge Raymond Deary. But does Trump now have reasons to regret this strategy? Insider says that Deary has not helped Trump so far, exposing holes in the legal arguments presented by Trump's attorneys, confronting their attempts to evade scrutiny, and expressing overall impatience with Trump's legal Defense. This is very interesting. This shows that the special master could have been a beneficial development, even from the standpoint of people who want to see Trump prosecuted for something or, or you know, are not in the pro-Trump camp, even though it was Trump's own lawyers who wanted this arrangement. Because now you have, and he won that battle for the time being, he might ultimately lose that battle, but you have this figure who is not impressed with the arguments the Trump side is making whatsoever, and is in fact saying, there are parallels here to a lot of the election arguments. Mm. The special master saying that the, the Trump campaign is not even putting forth any actual argument mm. for why they can't, why the government can't, uh, shouldn't obtain these documents, shouldn't look through them, uh, which is an indictment so often of, of the, like the Trump legal, the, like they just, they had, they had no actual plan yeah. for the elections. So the things they were saying, 
the things they were promising, there was no on paper legal plan to actually do anything. Yeah, they, they seem to be testing a lot of these theories out just on the Fox News audience. They, they throw Giuliani at it and see what happens. Yeah. And the reality is that that has the effect of exposing their legal strategy before they've committed. Yeah, exactly. Before they've really committed to it. And it boxes them in to certain lanes. I you know, there was obviously everyone was watching the big Trump interview on Fox last night. And that was part of the commentary that he is now having to defend, even to a Fox News audience, um, claims that he can, for example, declassify right, things he said that with his, his mind. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I saw a lot of great, uh, great, uh, th that was memed a lot. Yeah. A lot of people, somebody said like, this is, it's like a mutant power, like Professor X <laughs> declassifies in his mind the documents. Obviously right. that is not how it works. All right, we'll have more Rising right after this. Stay with us. The former head of Mississippi's welfare agency, John Davis, entered into a plea agreement with federal and state prosecutors as part of the widening probe into $70 million misappropriated, uh, worth of misappropriated welfare funds, which senior reporter at Front Office Sports says could spell major trouble for Hall of Fame quarterback Brett Favre. Davis was an accomplice for the alleged embezzlement of welfare funds that implicate the former governor and former NFL star and nonprofit boss uh, Nancy knew. Last week, texts released between former NFL quarterback Brett Favre and the governor showed the two communicated over a scheme to use at least $5 million of their state's welfare funds to help build a new volleyball center at the University of Mississippi, where Brett Favre's daughter was a volleyball player. The reported conversations allegedly took place back in 2017 to 2019, according to texts filed in the state of Mississippi's civil lawsuit over the welfare fund scandal. Favre is linked to about $8 million in misappropriated welfare funds. However, the former NFL star and the former governor, Phil Bryant, have not been charged for their alleged roles. This looks extremely corrupt. There are some very damning uh, text messages uh, between Brett Favre and the, I believe it's the welfare... The Coordinate, well, uh, there probably are those as well. I'm, th this, these are not with the governor okay. because, um, because they're referring to the governor. Mm -hmm. And he says, uh, <laughs> Favre uh, uh, texts, if you were to pay me, is there any way the media can find out where it came from and how much? Oh, that's and, with Nancy New. Yes, and Nancy yeah. New says, no, we never have that information publicized. I understand you being uneasy about that, though. Let's see what happens on Monday with the conversations with some of the folks at Southern, Southern Mississippi. Maybe it will click with them, hopefully. <laughs> okay, thanks. <laughs> wow, just got off the phone with Phil Bryant. That's the former governor. He is on board with us. We will get this done. Awesome. I needed to hear that for sure. Um, look, I am totally against there are a few things i'm more against spending than spending public money on sports stadiums mm -hmm. even when it is done on the up and up when done you know legally and and often that is something um, states will spend state governments will spend tons of money on sports stadiums out of a dubious theory that it's like good for economic mm -hmm. growth but usually they're it's kind of an economic tautology because usually they're taxing 
they're taxing like thriving industries in the state, like you know, taxi cabs or, or restaurants or something. Mm -hmm. They're all being taxed to pay for a sports stadium. So it's really just a transfer of wealth yes. from already thriving industries to to um, to whoever owns the stadium. To or whatever. in this case, not so thriving. In this, yeah, in this case, it's not even on the up and up. It's, and and remember, this is Mississippi, where the capital city is currently experiencing yeah. a water crisis largely abandoned by the state legislature, who has been pointing fingers and saying that it's mismanagement on the part of the city that has put it in the situation, completely ignoring its push to privatize the water supply and, now we know, its own gross negligence in handing millions of dollars to a multimillionaire NFL player and to fund a college Stadium. Yeah, wait, we missed the key detail here, right? It is that his daughter, Brett Favre's daughter, yes. was a freshman volleyball yes. player at this university. Yes, and to so be clear, just that's to, the, to, that's to the really, Favre angle. To really frame up this, uh, this text, he's basically, this is, your lawyer will advise you to never email or text anything never. as inculpatory as this. Never. Basically, hey, will anybody ever find out that I'm doing this extremely dastardly, unethical thing, stealing millions of dollars from poor people. Remember, this is a welfare fund. Poor people in the state who need this money for housing and food and to keep a roof over their heads. Then this is what Brett Favre has said. So obviously this is this is a scandal, but in some ways it's a scandal how much it hasn't been a scandal. Many people in the sports world have been pointing out that this has gotten very little attention compared to some of the other kinds of sports-related scandals, including most recently um, there's a coach who's married to Nia Long who was just out today or yesterday that he's cheated on his wife. Like that kind of thing gets more airtime than this. Uh, well, here, salacious sex-related things. Well, here's that... Shannon Sharp. I think this is pretty salacious, stealing money from the poor and no, the multimillionaire. I... But, you know, here's Shannon Sharp. Uh, uh, talking about it uh, recently. I talked to people that was in the room when Brett Favre went to the Hall of Fame and nobody mentioned about text messages that he sent to that jet masseuse. Mm. Nobody mentioned anything about the addiction that he suffered from. But yeah. yet, T.O., they brought up everything. Can you imagine if T.O. would have had an incident, incidents like Brett Favre off the field? T.O. still, to this day right now, would not be in the Hall of Fame. Yet, they walked right past it like Brett Favre did nothing. That is true. I the, give you that. The problem that I have with this situation, yep. you got to be a sorry mofo mm. to steal from the lowest. Mississippi is the poorest state in our country. It is. It's citizens. So if they're the poorest state, Brett Favre is taken from the underserved. You made a hundred plus million dollars in the NFL. This is what we know. Scared when black and brown people do do fraud the government, they do they hell bit. Mm -hmm. You get an EBT card and you get wick and you get stuff like that, boy, they move heaven and earth to try to put you in jail for four hundred little measly dollars. Fact. Now this man done took a million dollars. And they sitting around like, well, well, you know, it, it happened and we'll see. And they're gonna get more money and do it all over again. The biggest criminals, the people that steal the most, look like that. But he's been a sleaze ball. He's been shady for a very, very long time. Yeah, I mean, it's a good point there. He could, he could have just donated the money to the university if he felt so strongly about it. Right, he's, he's obviously he's very, very wealthy. Very wealthy. You know, it's name it the Brett Favre Volleyball <laughs> Stadium. <laughs> right. So, like, what do you make of this, Robbie? Is Shannon on some level right that there we live in a country where crimes committed by poor people that are much smaller in value end up getting more attention from the police state, uh, attention from prosecutors, than these large financial crimes uh, uh. that... And, if, and in fact, end up stealing much more in terms of dollar amounts from the federal government. I mean, I don't know. 
interesting crimes attract more attention? I mean, I don't think it's it's scandalous or wild or or, or no, no, some kind of indictment that I'm violent about crimes criminal get prosecution, sex-based scandals. No, 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 but I'm not asking a media cheating, question cetera, right now. I'm not, whatever is, Adam Levine's doing. But I'm not asking a media question right now. I'm talking about criminal prosecution. Oh. If, if, if a, a football player, there was someone talking about a story about some college player who apparently stole like less right. than $40 worth of crab legs from a restaurant and this was a story. You know, if someone were to walk into CVS and steal a bottle of shampoo, that would be considered to be a horrible criminal event. We have seen a lot of coverage about how CVS has a well, lot no, of No, now you're talking about coverage again rather well, no, than no, but wait a minute. prosecution. There is, and these people get prosecuted and thrown in jail. People, shoplifters get prosecuted all the time. I mean, sometimes and sometimes they don't. When they're right? caught, they're definitely prosecuted. Brett Favre, even in the context of this discussion here and it being publicized, is not at this point being prosecuted for literally engaging in an embezzlement scheme to take a million dollars out yeah. of the taxpayers' coffers. Yeah, I and suspect again, that will change. welfare coffers. This is welfare money. We hear a lot about welfare cheats, and it's, it'll be curious to see if uh, Brett Favre is treated with the same intensity as uh, poor people who uh, ex exploit the system. But I think it's very important for people to understand that these kinds of, like, sports stadium enrichment schemes are very, even when they're on the up and up, are, are like just utterly sure. atrocious from a good governance or good stewardship of public money perspective. They're not, they don't always seem or appear as crooked as this one. This one looks very crooked. Mm -hmm. And um, I hope he should face whatever the appropriate consequences are. Right, we'll be following following this to see whether or not Brett Favre. You got me Bell, interested in Carla. a sports story, Brianna. That doesn't happen I, very often. I, I, I try. I try, <laughs> Robbie. We'll be following this to see if Brett Favre, NFL Hall of Player, does in fact do any time or suffers any uh, criminal uh, penalties here. We'll be have, ha having more rising for you right after this. Earlier this week, White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre blamed the current immigration crisis on a flow of migrants fleeing authoritarian regimes in Latin America and chastised Florida Governor Ron DeSantis for exploiting, quote, victims of communism by flying them to Martha's Vineyard. Let's watch. Let's remember, these folks are fleeing communism. When you think about Venezuela, what's going on in Venezuela, when you think about what's going on in Nicaragua, when you think about what's going on in Cuba, they are fleeing political persecution only to be used as a political pawn by the Florida governor. The way that we see it is alerting Fox News uh, and not city or state officials about a plan to abandon children fleeing communism on the side of the street is not burden sharing. That is not the definition that we see of burden sharing. It is a cruel, premeditated political stunt. That is not what they're, that is what they are doing. Uh, and so we're always, we're always happy to have conversations about ways to further improve border processing and we could be doing more if, again, if we're Joining us now to discuss his reaction is co-founder of the Revolutionary Blackout Network, Nick Cruz. Glad to have us, have you with us, Nick. Uh, thank you for having me on. So I, we want to ask you about this question of how much communism is really to blame for the uh, immigrants who have chosen to leave Venezuela. Is, is the press secretary here uh, accurately describing the motives for um, so many people leaving the country? What's been going on there? Uh, my first reaction when I saw that, I was thinking, like, is that Sarah Huckabee Sanders? Uh, there's literally no difference there between the Biden administration messaging on this issue 
and Trump's messaging on this issue as well. There's no difference between a Jim Psaki or a Stephanie Gra- uh, Graham or the Kareem Jean Pierre and the Sean Spicer. It's the same thing. The same way that U.S. foreign policy does not change between it doesn't change between presidents at all. And the idea you're going to blame communism instead of U.S. intervention. All three of those countries she named are countries that the United States has put sanctions on and interfere with. And this is kind of the same thing that Chomsky was saying as well. When you look at uh, Donald Trump and you look at Joe Biden, they mostly have uh, the same foreign policy. When it comes from seeking regime change in Venezuela, sponsoring genocide in Yemen, closing up with Saudi Arabia, funding and shielding the apartheid state of Israel, their hardline stance on Iran, and escalating with China. It's the same thing. It's the same thing. How can you blame an economic model for the failures and what happened to the citizens when you guys are illegally seizing their assets and not allowing them to sell their oil on the international market? You had the Bank of England who had, they just had a a sham trial where they said, we were like, oh, well, the $1 billion in gold that we stole from Venezuela, we had the right to do that. And it's, it's very telling that you see the same colonial powers, where it be the UK, Germany, and the United States, imposing their imperial conquest ambitions on the global south. They think they have the right to ruin the lives of Venezuelans, for example, and other countries because they reject their capitalist, imperialist political agenda. The the Venezuelan people 100% knows what's going on. That's why Nicolas Maduro is stronger than ever. And this is another example of U.S. sanctions failing. They know the United States government is trying to take them down to install far right-wing fascist that is mostly white, that is mostly bourgeoisie, that has been waging an active class war against Venezuela. When you look at Nicolas Maduro and the socialist revolution that started 20 years ago, that is mostly supported by black, indigenous, and poor people. And you have the white bourgeoisie who in charge of the media, who run all the, country, all the companies. They have been waging a class war backed by the United States, backed and supported by the United States. So it's the height of irony, the Democrats and Pierre, they complain about January 6th. If you look at the coups they sponsor in these countries that she that she listed, that, that January 6th is child play compared, compared to what we do to Venezuela. We back Bolsonaro, who used to send death squads into Venezuela to assassinate and kill Bolson, uh, sorry, Badero uh, supporters. You had the hard far-right fascist in Venezuela that was setting left-wing supporters of Nicolas Maduro on fire in the streets. These are the people that we support. So the idea that you're going to blame an economic model instead of our actions is ridiculous on face value. Uh, Okay. Look, I also oppose uh, many of the policies you just mentioned, the support for regime change. I would get rid of all these sanctions, too. But, like, let's not gloss over the long history of corruption and political persecution by left-wing regimes in all of these countries as well, um, uh, under policies that have totally immiserated um, Cuba and Venezuela. It's on and on and on. I think it's— laughable to say oh, it's all cuba. the u.s's fault so cuba has a higher life expectancy than the united states a higher literacy rate a much better health care system despite the fact that the united states stole billions of dollars from them so i'm asking you robbie what's the excuse for the united states of course there are always missteps that governments make but the united states <laughs> is the richest empire that we ever seen one out of five children live in poverty in this country. If you look at Skid Row, I am asking you, what is the excuse for the United States? 
You have Venezuela, you have Cuba, you have all these countries that has been the victim of U.S. economic war that you guys call sanctions. Sanctions is seized warfare. You guys locked out Venezuela from the international market and you blame their economic system. We have the record amount of income inequality in this country that is higher than the, the era of serfdom. So, Robbie, what's the excuse for capitalists? Who's sanctioning us? I don't think Skid Row, I mean, the, the, the collapse of American cities under progressive liberal democratic regimes is not really an indictment of it, the Trump United, policies the, the or UN, capitalist policies. I mean, we, we get to the, well, the if it's the United so great in Cuba, why are they fleeing they here? Why are they crossing shark-infested waters? Well, well, Robbie, the point that Nick is making is that, it look, if you really think it's the economic systems in Cuba or Venezuela that are so destructive, why not lift sanctions, let them sink or fall on their own merit, and then we can have a sanctions. legitimate conversation about whether communism fails. But what so many people on the left are frustrated with is that there has never been a communist or socialist government that has been allowed to freely test the model without the economic war, I love how you put it there, Nick, against them that basically rigs the game from the start. There's also never been a communist regime that doesn't imprison political dissenters, uh, cause we deliberate famine, or, or, kill, or millions, or kill millions one. of people. Are you saying that we don't? Are you saying that we don't? I am not. Are you saying, are you saying that have, the communists do? No, I've indicted. Country. I've indicted all of our policies. This is why we can never have honest conversations. But, 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 I will criticize Robbie. everything that we do, everything no, the capitalist West governments do, and then you say, "Oh, so you're wait not criticizing them?" I'm saying all the sanctions are <laughs> wait, bad. Wait, wait a minute, and then guys. you turn around and excuse political repression under no. thug-like communist regimes we, that have killed we, millions and and starved millions. But, it's ridiculous. But wait a minute, Robbie. It's, I, it's look, insulting. Look, look. Not, nobody here that we didn't bring up the political oppression because I think the observation that I think because you don't want to talk about it. it you don't want to concede that it's true I'm literally trying to if you just let me get the sentence out here Robbie I think what Nick and I are pointing to is that political repression all kinds of authoritarian abuses those are things that exist around the world regardless of uh, political uh, orientation however those things are only brought, <laughs> wait a minute those things are only brought up most the overwhelming majority of countries in this world are capitalist and most of the bad things that are happening in this world are happening under capitalism however capitalism is never blamed for the bad things Not that happen capita. in the country Co everything that happens in a communist country per Karine Jean-Pierre's statement is attributed to communism you're talking about per capita America has the largest number of people incarcerated, living in cages, in jails, and anywhere else in the world, not per capita, yes. but period, despite not being anywhere near the largest country in the world. We have more people in jails than China. And you can say and dispute Chinese numbers and what's true and what's false and blah, 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 blah. But nobody can dispute the fact that we have an unprecedented and enormous mass incarceration problem. So this is not to excuse anything anywhere, but the, the point still stands. If you think that communism and socialism are such a unmitigated disaster, why is it that they have not been allowed to go ahead and run their own countries into the ground without American political interference? Yeah, we shouldn't have American political interference. I, again, I agree. I say it every time on this show, but they would not be so, thriving on their own and have never thrived on their own. So you well, realize that mm -hmm. U.S. state policy, when they, when they put Cuban embargo on there, was to destroy the economy because they didn't want to show an alternative to capitalism. If you capitalists are so confident that communism will fail, why won't you leave it alone, Robbie? Why, why, why won't you guys leave it alone? I mean, why I'm not in charge of the policy of the country, country, man. I would, I would rescind so all of the sanctions the tomorrow. Well, Nick, and you, can't, me... you can't claim that these countries are also authoritarian because imagine what would happen. And you saw Democrats right now prosecuting January 6th protesters. You had the CIA literally sponsor death squads in Venezuela that tried to overthrow the president. Do you know what the United States would do 
if we did the same thing. So be, get real, Robbie. This is how the real world works. There is no such thing as overt authoritarianism. It's countries upholding their laws. Laws are a thing, Robbie. You can't overthrow a president without consequence. Well, look, and I think that Robbie does, you know, appreciate that. And I, I, to his credit, would if magically we're president of the United States and maybe this will get different. in my vote. A lot of, a lot of <laughs> would, things would be different. Would lift sanctions on countries like Venezuela, but it seems pretty clear that most people, um, frankly, regardless of political party in this country, most of our political leaders anyway, would not do the same. And I think it's a really interesting tell about their lack of confidence that all of their narratives around some of these countries would actually Including a lot of the, the migrants. So I, w I would absolutely support and have supported forever ending the Cuban embargo. But a lot of the Cuban migrants who come, one of the reasons we don't do that is there's tremendous political pressure on Florida politicians, on Florida Republicans from Cuban migrants who don't want to do that. Can you, can you explain why that is? Please. Please, the man. Cuban bourgeoisie that has been waging a class war, the same people who fled because Fidel Castro wanted to share the resources with the poor, they don't want to lift the Cuban embargo. Share the, share go the to Cuba with the poor sounds like a little Cuban. bit of a euphemism. I, I, but. No, no, no. Go to Cuba and ask the average Cuban how they feel about the Cuban embargo. So these class traders that moved to Florida, their pain means nothing. Saying they didn't want to keep the Cuban embargo? Does that sound like people who care about the country, Robbie? Or, or people that support U.S. hegemony and capitalist... Uh, domination. Yeah, like, I, I, want, I want the uplifting of the global working class, and you guys rather destroy the global working class just so you guys can say zingers like communism never worked, that Cuba is failing. Leave these countries alone and allow them to thrive, and then we can talk. Until then, you have to explain to me, Robbie, what's the excuse for the United States for the massive poverty, despite the fact that we have no country sanctioning us? Where's the U.S. embargo, Robbie? But we got Skid Row. <laughs> We got people without health care. 60,000 Americans die each year because they don't have health care. 300,000 plus could have, say, could have lived through the COVID pandemic if we had health care. So what's the excuse for the United States? Who's the giant power that has got their boot on our neck? Our ruling class has failed. The central planning model of the United States has failed. So to, to point the finger at other systems and while you live in the empire that people are starving in is the height of cowardice. Mm, well, I, I mean, our ruling class is definitely failing the American people on a lot of the subjects you just mentioned, the uh, crime, uh, uh, drug addiction, et cetera. Um, so <laughs> look, we, I'm, I'm sure we agree on that. And yeah, let's, uh, let's withdraw those, uh, those policies and see how it shakes out. Yeah. Well, look, I think we have to leave it there. But thank you so much for joining us, Nick. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me on. Make sure you guys check me out on revolutionary blackout if you had a chance so you get some uh real international reporting that can tell you the truth about the crimes of the u.s empire much appreciated nick we'll have more rising for you right after this on Wednesday, a federal judge in Louisiana struck down vaccine and mask requirements for staff and children in Head Start, a government-run early education program that mainly serves low-income children. In his ruling, Judge Terry Doey wrote, although vaccines arguably serve the public interest, the liberty interests of individuals mandated to take the COVID-19 vaccine outweigh any interest generated by the mandatory administration of vaccines. 
The Health and Human Services Department dropped the requirement already, but Head Start's policy to keep mandates in place is in stark contrast with the Biden administration's Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, which have actually already stopped recommending general mask wearing. And as I pointed out in my piece for reason, by continuing to impose the mandates on Head Start participants, the government is creating a two-tiered education system that actually singles out economically disadvantaged children for additional mandates that other people are not having to deal with. So the Liberty Justice Center and the Pelican Institute filed this lawsuit on behalf of 24 states. So we've talked about this situation on the show before. It's one the New York Times pointed out, and it's, I think, pretty appalling to a lot of people that while the CDC no longer generally requires or recommends, they don't require anything, they just make recommendations, sort of, they uh, no longer were saying that there, there should be general masking unless there's, unless you have, or you're immunocompromised or you're in an area with extreme spread. Um, Head Start was still having, they had a vaccine mandate in place for all staff and a mask mandate for the kids in, if they're indoors and even outdoors if they can't social distance, they're supposed to wear masks, kids as young as two. This is, so this is not a requirement that's on any other kids more generally. So the government is not saying anyone else has to do this. And even admitted, like when called out on this, they're like, yeah, we'll probably get around to changing this and we're not going to enforce it right now. But that like let, that leaves schools in a very weird, like, it's technically illegal to not do it, so should we be trying to wrestle masks onto kids' faces, uh, which is really dumb. And, is, and again, because Head Start doesn't have, my understanding, it, like, it doesn't ha it's just a program. So you could literally have schools where you'd have the Head Start kids having to wear masks and the non-Head Start kids, even though they might be in like the classroom down yeah, next door, not having to mask, which is crazy. Yeah, so it's it, crazy. and it seems like the so government was, good... was also thinking it was crazy, which is that they weren't wh right. why they weren't going to enforce it. So it seems like everyone was on the same page. The government realized, you know, yes. it, it wasn't intentionally keeping these people under a mask mandate versus other people. It had to do with the administrative, uh, you know, right. obstacles to getting things done and how the chips fell in different other areas with respect to mandates because of various other. Uh, so they initiated this lawsuit last November. Mm -hmm. So now, more recently, the government said, "Okay, yeah, we don't really think this mandate should." Be in place. So what I'm hoping is they don't appeal this decision. They, they could appeal this decision to the Fifth Circuit. Sure. I, I'm hoping they just don't well, because yeah, they said we don't want right. to. We don't want to. So please just let it go. Yeah, it sounds like the government is doing the right thing. It never enforced it. Didn't really want it. it. Seems like the courts are all on board and everybody's on the same page. So it seems like a victory story for those people who, yeah. you know, really wanted these in liberty interests protected. And now that everyone is able to make their own choices, the question becomes. It, are they going to actually be able to make those choices? Now, I recently discovered, as I tried to order more COVID tests last night, that the I, I missed the deadline, the September 3rd deadline for getting the free COVID tests. Are people who you pointed out are economically disadvantaged in these Head Start programs going to be able to afford you know, $15 tests to do the regular testing that they need to make sure that they are not coming to school and spreading the virus? Teachers who are under the best of circumstances, regularly exposed to viruses from kids, are they going to be able to do regular testing multiple times a week, spend $60 a week on these kinds of kits? Um, are there going to be HVAC system, uh, HVAC systems actually implemented in schools after all this money was passed out? Are we going to actually see the air quality where our younger and more economically disadvantaged kids are going to school? 
and what happens if there are these effects from repeated infections. We, everyone you know, is saying now that people are gonna get COVID lots of times, fair enough. If we see growing incidences of long COVID as a consequence, who is going to pay for that? And is this gonna be something that ignites, reignites a conversation about universal healthcare and whether or not our society can really persist if we have huge swaths of the population laid low by this particular disease? Well, on the testing front specifically, something, something clearly went wrong at some point, and in part because, as we know, you know, the, the, the government has bungled the testing side of this pretty badly from the beginning when they, they kind of centralized the testing process and then, and then had a fault. They went all in on a faulty test mm. that they had to correct. And, then, and we've, we've seen a lot of uh, subsequent uh, reporting from, government, from watchdog journalists uh, outlets on how uh, it's, it's just been bungled continuously, how other uh, people of their own volition came up with good tests that the CDC was reluctant to sign off on. I don't know what the, the status is now. The, the, the tests we do have, it seems to me, anecdotal, or like from people you talk to who have COVID who test, that it, it captures your infection, maybe, that they're not like totally reliable. I mean, at least this was a case when I knew a lot of people taking tests probably last Christmas time, um, and in January, when like everyone, everyone I knew in the city was getting it, uh, my wife got it. Then it was like, and the test didn't. So she took a test. The first showed. one we took, yes, it, it showed her. But I knew people I worked with, um, not at the Hill, but at Reason, were saying they were sick, and they tested like six times. Test the next day, they would test. The next day, they would test, and it took several times before it showed. A well, yeah, the home result. tests don't capture the disease as quickly as you know, these kind of in-person PCR tests. And that's another thing. Are people going to have financial support and accessibility to those kinds of tests, especially since people don't have general practitioners, they don't have a regular relationship with a doctor. All of these things, we just did a segment with someone who pointed out that 300,000 plus people, studies show, could have been saved from death in the COVID pandemic if we had had a better healthcare infrastructure, if we had had something like Medicare for all. So I really respect everyone who's been pushing to hold the government accountable, to have more consistency in its policies and to protect the liberty interests of people. Now for me, the question is, is there going to be a persistent effort to hold the government responsible to take care of its citizenry? Or was this just about calling out you know, the Biden administration versus actually advocating for the broader interest of the American public? I, mean, I would love I would love to live in a world where the testing was very reliable and very ubiquitous. I think that would be, especially versus other interventions, I think it is less intrusive to have people just test. I mean, before you go into school, before you go into anywhere, like, and I know people watching are going to shout at that, but I would prefer that than everyone having to wear masks all the time or being required to get vaccines or, or being constantly injected. I, the testing is the less intrusive, especially if it was very reliable and you could catch infections before you were spreading COVID spreading, and you could yeah. get the R not number down. Yeah. That would be, there would be in the era before we had the vaccines yeah. and before we knew how well the vaccines were going to do, I really thought that was going to be the only way out of the pandemic because yeah. I thought the vaccine would be as effective as like the flu vaccine, which mm -hmm. has never, does not eradicate flu. And so I, I thought yeah. testing would be the way out of it. Mm -hmm. Then we got better than expected news about the vaccines for a window. And now, you know, now they're, they're again, how many times do we have to say it? they're still doing well on severe disease and death for at-risk populations. For cases, they're not doing much. So you know, one thing that people have been pointing out online is that industries where talent is not replaceable, like 
the film industry, where if someone gets sick, the whole production mm -hmm. shuts down and millions of dollars are lost, have been testing maniacally and That's have true. had very few infections. So it's an interesting model to continue to follow. Mm. But we don't. We, we're saying we're not valuable. We don't. We don't test. <laughs> like I said, I tested last night. So some of us. Some of us. I mean, no one left to host the show. We're at the end of the host. <laughs> All right. We'll have more rising for you after this. The controversial Gaze Against Groomers Twitter account has been banned from Venmo, PayPal, and Google after critics accused the account of anti-transgender hate speech. The group, which describes itself as, quote, a coalition of gays against the sexualization, indoctrination, and medicalization of children, tweeted in response to their deplatforming yesterday, quote, we are an organization that consists entirely of gay people whose only mission is to safeguard children from abuse. Woke homophobia is real, folks. They continued, quote, Big Tech is coordinating a massive attack on our organization for trying to protect children. This is insane. And it's hard to see any kind of justification from the companies that are uh, the social media companies, the financial transaction companies that have taken action against them. I'm not really seeing a tangible accusation of what exactly they did wrong that says... They, they violated the user agreements of Venmo and PayPal. Um, look, they're, they're clearly uh, like libs of TikTok that is, I think, the best uh, parallel for, for what they're doing. They're kind of calling out trans uh, gender surgeries and trans, uh, you know, uh, teachers talking about the kinds of videos. Um, and maybe, I don't know if we have that cartoon we yeah. can pull up as an example of the kind of content they post. But yeah, they 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 basically are against, um, you know, right. transition surgery for at least for minors. And they, you know. Yeah, my point being is I don't know what's uniquely um, uh, so pernicious about this that they're not allowed to do it or that they're going to be punished for doing it. I mean, they, you know, these companies can be opaque, I guess, if they want, but it doesn't seem like a seem like a good or defensible move to me. I don't. They're not even trying to defend it. They're not saying here's the thing they did that is just unconscionable that you know we consider harassment to some degree that is, you know, that violate some legal principle or some user principle we would yeah, have. Yeah, so what but. Glenn Greenwald has pointed out is that regardless of what you think of the group, he's tweeted, uh, you know, it makes no difference what you think of this group. What you're seeing here is the new and much more alarming frontier of corporate censorship, banishment from the financial system for having the wrong ideology, Trudeau's freezing of protesters' bank accounts previewed this. And I mm -hmm. think that that's perfectly legitimate, as we've talked about, as I talked about in a recent radar. So much of the focus of, um, you know, government oppression, the FBI overreach, et cetera, has been focused on the left. So so I think it makes sense for leftists in particular to be really wary of uh, companies' ability to basically right. advance the political interests of the prevailing uh, the prevailing majorities. Um, you know, there's a separate question here about the institution itself. Obviously, I think that characterizing itself, naming itself gays against groomers when none of the content seems to really be about grooming is another example of the right kind of using what we all feel, which is revulsion about the idea of sexualizing or sexually abusing children to make a different kind of critique against trans people, against I also don't, people. I also don't really understand what this group is raising money for, to be clear. I, this is a group that has only existed for three months. Mm -hmm. um, 
you know, libs of TikTok is just like one person who's doing all of this. Like, the, what is this? Who is? I, I, so I know who's behind this organization. I think it's a it's a woman, a lesbian, who was on Tucker. I don't know if we have the clip of that. Um, she was on. I saw that interview mm-hmm. with you, or I at least saw that it happened on social media. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't. So I don't know what they're. Are they organizing? Are they doing activism? Or is it just? I mean, they're selling merchandise if you go to their website. I mean, look, so I, if it's I, some I, kind of cynical cash grab against the transgender movement. Then, but but I would still say I don't know why they're not a, like that's like the Black Lives Matter movement engages in some cynical cash grabbing. We've all had criticism of that. Yeah. I saw Sean uh, Sean King just got himself, and so or there was some reporting on him. Did you see that yesterday? Mm-hmm. There's some damning reporting on him in either the Huffington Post or BuzzFeed or some. Maybe the Daily Beast, some otherwise sympathetic. Yeah, I, I'm not sure what these gays um, against groomers. Not, right, I'm not bringing that up uh, for any reason. Uh, I'm just are about, but I do think that if you were, there's a way that doing stuff like this, cutting off their financials, um, basically empowers them and mm-hmm. takes them from being 100%. a nothing group um, to a group that now people want to fund. This a similar thing happened with uh, the rhetoric around. Um, Sorry, the Kenosha shooter uh, young man. Kyle Rittenhouse. Kyle Rittenhouse. That some of the reporting, which initially wasn't very accurate about who he shot and a lot of misinformation going on there, caused people to lend him, I would argue, more sympathy than he actually mm. warranted having, you know, uh, killed people. Uh, and so I, I, you know, if I wanted to boost my movement as an anti-trans movement, I think baiting financial institutions and people that are perceived to have liberal values into having these kinds of moments of overreach is exactly the right plan. 100%. And that is such a valid point. Thank you for raising it. Yes. That is some, I wish mainstream or you know, slightly liberal or progressive organizations, media, um, companies like would understand that trying to crush these sorts of things can and has backfired so dramatically because you make it you make it sound like well you you attract people to it like now this yeah. is the forbidden truth that the yeah. powers that be are trying to stop you from hearing yeah. why if, if it's so if it's so wrong why can't they just let you hear it and that is a persuasive argument yeah. and and this group has gained uh, tons of followers it is going to have another different financial model people are going to hear more about it and be drawn to it because you tried to sign it. So it's just such a bad tactic. You know, absent some like legitimate reason, like where did they dock someone? Did they right. violate some obvious user policy? Right. Um, are they engaged in some kind of financial fraud? They're not claiming any of that. Right. It just sounds like it's well, they're engaged in anti-trans rhetoric, and we're not, we don't like that. Um, so we're going to punish that, even though we don't, we wouldn't generally punish speech or anything else. They don't have a you know general policy against that kind of thing. Very, very bad idea. Very bad idea. Backfires. Yeah. Well, to, to that end, uh, the algorithm is trying to crush the the truth that you hear on this oh, show. Oh, should we say that? Yes, yes. Every day we are being silenced, and uh, and we desp- we need you. We need you, the loyal viewer. Like, um, subscribe, share with your friends on social media. No. Ten easy payments of $19.99. No. Yeah, and well, we throw in a, few, uh, a free t-shirt. We don't right. have t-shirts. We used to have coffee mugs, but they all say Crystal and Sagar on them. Well, look, we appreciate, of course, you viewing this uh, kind of content, because we do think that it's a break from what you get in the typical media spheres and we will definitely have more rising for you right after this.
Well, The View's Sonny Hostin is under fire online after suggesting that former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley hid her Indian heritage in a bid to further her political career. Let's watch. I'd love to see Nikki Haley. And Nikki Chris Haley the chameleon. I think that Nikki Haley was an incredibly effective governor what is her of real South name Carolina. There are some, some of by. us that can be chameleons and decide not to embrace our ethnicity so that we can pass. Sonny, I so don't that think that's fair. You go by a different name. Yeah. Haley hit back at The View during an appearance on Fox News yesterday. Let's watch. They can't stand the fact that a minority female would be a conservative Republican. You know, when I ran for um, when I ran and won governor, um, a, a reporter went to a high ranking African-American Democrat female and said, how do you feel that South Carolina now has their first minority governor? And she said, Nikki Haley's not a minority. She's just a conservative with a tan. They let liberals say that about conservative Republican minorities all the time. But yet nothing is done. Had this been said about a Democrat, all hell would have broken loose. Yeah, I think she's entirely right. This is where having a very reductive view of identity politics get you, gets you. Democrats have been playing this game for a really long time where they emphasize representation to the exclusion of all else. Now, I think representation is valuable, but you can't basically use that as a stand-in for substantive politics, or you're going to be confronted by the reality that people whose politics you don't agree with mm. also come in different colors and genders and sexual orientations. And now Democrats really are losing their mind over the fact that there are, frankly, there's a lot of diversity within the, the Republican Party. I observed in 20. 20, that the RNC had more diversity than the DNC. Yeah, I mean, what Asuncion Sonny Hostin <laughs> got wrong about this subject is that actually, uh, far from hiding her minority status or heritage, um, Nikki Haley has, has like embraced it to show that, to, to refute the, main, the mainstream media or democratic notion or whatever it is that, you know, there are no... There are no people of color or women or whatever in the Republican coalition. In fact, the Republican coalition loves to go, look, we have minorities and who support no, us. No one's doing identity politics as well as Republicans these days, I, I, I got to say. I think that's true. Yeah. I, I think that, well, there, a lot and, of it. But moreover, they, I, do not, but yeah. they do not shy away from saying, they do not at all try to hide or cover up the fact that they have some minorities supporting them. Yeah. When they have minorities supporting them, they look at this minority yeah, supporters. They put them right just behind Trump at the rally. against groomers, right? <laughs> right. They, they they want yeah. they want to people who are Republican who who are not you know what the Democrat or mainstream media considers as a typical Republican. That's the first thing that they want yeah. to tell you about themselves to disabuse you of that notion. Yeah. So it's just it's just totally. Like, it's living in a different world, different planet, to think that is being suppressed or hidden. Yeah. Moreover, look, a lot of immigrant groups that come to America experience pressure to assimilate, including changing their names to make it make them easier to say mm -hmm. by Americans. This is a pressure that a lot of people have been under, including Barack Obama, who famously went as Barry until he was well into adulthood, right? So while I personally might have feelings about, you know, people who kind of submit to that pressure versus stand up to it. And I would like to think that we all could live in our truths and be big, bad, and proud and, and use the names that were given to us. I also think there's something a little bit perverse and unfair to take that social pressure that people experience, which is negative and really hard for immigrant kids to deal with, and make conclusions, draw some conclusion about how she feels about her heritage inside and her relationship to her culture and her community. It may or may not be true 
on a case-by-case basis with various individuals. Some people might be ashamed of where they came from, but I don't think it's fair to say that just because somebody changes their name. And as you pointed out, and as they pointed out in the view, Sonny <laughs> Hostin has also gone by a simplified yeah. name. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't make doesn't make any, name, doesn't yeah. make any sense. Um, I, a, a very funny example of a of of being of, of facing political pressure to change your name, obviously, on the Republican side is uh, Ronna Romney McDaniel, the RNC chairwoman who dropped the Romney from her name, uh, demanded <laughs> as after that was demanded by the Trump people. <laughs> I have no idea. You know? I did not heard Ronna about that Romney one. McDaniel is just Ronna McDaniel now. And on the other side, we have um, Beto O'Rourke. Robert, <laughs> right? Robert right. Beto O'Rourke, right. who's you know Beto. some people argue are ma- is making a, a play to Latino population in a Texas. A very cynical by, play. That, yeah. Uh, yeah. Although he have, I should say that he's gone by the name Beto since he was a little kid. But his father also was a public figure who may have been playing the long game there. Yeah. <laughs> so who knows what that was about? But again, I think we should all stay away from trying to read into the psyches and family dynamics and culture dynamics of politicians and just criticize them on their mayors. There's a lot of things substantively that I don't agree with. Nikki Haley on. A lot of things substantively I don't agree with Nikki right. Haley on and, either. And the people in The View could have educated their audience about yeah, those things. Right. She's a little bit out of step with, uh, well, she's gone back and forth on how she feels about Trump personally. Uh, she's definitely more in the in a kind of Bushian, mm-hmm. uh, neoconservative mm-hmm. mold. I don't know that she's a full full-flung neoconservative, but she's definitely more into that camp than, uh, than, than the new right or any mm-hmm. of that. So that would be a really interesting mm-hmm. you know, conversation to have or, or tension to ferret out. Mm-hmm. But of course, they, have, they have, don't know anything about that. Yeah. Maybe, maybe that's too much to get into for the view. We'll just, they're just going to make fun of her name. But. Yeah, yeah. Well, look, point Nikki Haley. Point Nikki Haley. We'll leave it we'll there. Keeping score. <laughs> we'll have more rising for you after this. Conservative commentator Benny Johnson's speech on memes, his favorite subject, at a Turning Point USA event at the University of Iowa earlier this week, it went sour when someone in the audience was apparently so triggered by a video featuring Vice President Kamala Harris. Johnson later confirmed that yes, this is the meme that caused the reaction. It's not the most hilarious or amusing meme to me. Uh, Benny Johnson kind of fashions himself as like the meme guy. Um, the, uh, so the person was arrested, uh, very important to note, who and should have been, I would argue. Maybe you feel differently, probably, I don't know. Uh, but he kicked over that, the, uh, the, projector. the meme display projector. Yeah, look, obviously I don't think that's necessarily the best way to go about expressing your uh, frustration with something. But, you know, let's talk about the meme. The meme implies that uh, Kamala Harris, who very famously, to be honest, to be clear, told immigrants, do not come, uh, was sent to the border to give that explicit message, has been frankly no friend of progressive immigration policies from a progressive point of view, greeting enthusiastically a bus uh, in front of which a mariachi singer has been placed, implying that 
the migrant wave is coming from Mexico, I presume, which of course is pretty reductive when we look at the actual origins of all of the immigrants that have been coming off across the country. So I would argue that it's not a leap to characterize a meme that flattens the nation of origin of immigrants into a Mexican stereotype is dare I say, dare you say racial, because I know what happens if I say it's racist. So let's just say it's inappropriate and reductive. I don't okay? think the meme really works because let's just say it's inappro- inappropriate and reductive. Mariachi now, band singers aren't coming into our country. I don't. Well, well, that's enough. the whole point. Right, so they're, they're using, using that as a stand-in for, stand for all immigrants, Venezuelan not even exactly, yeah, I, exactly. No, so that's that's why I think. I understand also perfectly because well the singer why that is blocking is the bus. Irritated. But that's she's supposed to be getting on that bus. It's, it's so stupid. it's like the is whole she, was thing she is, getting on? They're getting off the bus. She's getting on the bus. It's a bus to stupid town. It doesn't work. Okay, doesn't and work they're trying to take us all there. It doesn't work for me. And I also think it's very regrettable that we live in a world that might potentially put criminal penalties on somebody for an outburst, the likes of which we used to handle in this country. People would get in bar fights. People yeah. handled private. And getting, getting a criminal justice system involved seems like a little bit of a, a snowflake move, but it's certainly within their legal rights to do so. Fair enough. It it is frustrating to me, though. I think that the, these kind of events are cons- consistently surfaced as trying to stand in for what exactly? Like, what is the point of this? having circulated on the internet, what is this supposed to prove? It draws, I think, a false equivalence between someone kicking over a projector, which is not something that I would endorse, and the use of a meme that is intended to, I would argue, dehumanize and flatten the experiences of human beings that are fleeing a persecution in their home countries and wanting asylum. And look, I'm someone who has, to be clear, been the target of a lot of K-Hive abuse. I'm no fan of Kamala Harris's supporters. After the Bernie campaign ended, they photoshopped me wearing uh, McDonald's outfits and uh, in a garbage Oh, I saw that one yesterday. I guess the idea that being that, That was very like, mean. If you, you know, look, I, I don't take offense at the idea. If they want to dress me up as an essential worker, I certainly don't think it's shameful to work at McDonald's or to be a, a sanitation worker. I think it's really telling of their politics, of these alleged liberals and their politics, that they think I would be embarrassed to be depicted in that kind of light. So much for working class heroes. But the reality is that they have been the most vicious people that I've ever encountered on the internet. And unlike the so-called Bernie bros, there has been a... Um, open acceptance by Kamala Harris's husband mm-hmm. and many people in the Democratic Party and the Biden administration of the of the bad actors, explicit embrace of them. I think we have, <laughs> I think we have one clip of something um, a Kamala a Kamala supporter said about me at one point. Mm, let's see that. <laughs> and let me tell you one damn thing, Bree. You're no friend of black people because you said in a statement. And I'm gonna put the damn video below this thread you said in a statement as the press secretary for bernie sanders campaign that you believe black people are so stupid that you could just slap any policy medicare for all free college tuition and just slap the name black agenda on it and black people will just run with it you know what you might be black in the skin but you're a white cracker in the mind okay and just because your is black by skin just remember this ritz may be brown but it's still a cracker just like you Bree. <laughs> I'm not going to end right there. This message is to Mark Lamont Hill. Um, this no, you is can like stop. the second that, time I've caught talking about me at this point. giving disparaging remarks Cut against Hill. my vice. Sassy. Sassy. <laughs> so, sassy. Sassy. <laughs> that, that's, that's like pretty.
pretty par for the course. We gotta mm-hmm. give that guy points for creativity, even if not for truthiness. Um, but yeah, like he wasn't with someone who I saw ever embraced by um, the campaign personally. But one of the most uh, 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 Common tech, the people who were most uh, profligate in their in their tweeting has has a picture with their arm around uh, Kamala Harris's husband, and they tweet, "Thank you to the K Hive. We appreciate the K Hive." Imagine if Bernie Sanders had ever tweeted, "Oh, we love the Bernie Bros. Bernie Bros. Keep at it. Yeah. Keep you know." So I mean, you know. so so look, I, I think it's perfectly fine and appropriate, and in fact, good to make fun of politicians. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, you know, we can't. It would be insane to ever to, to have anyone craft rule like, "Oh, you can't make fun of Kamala Harris." Like. People make fun of Donald Trump, including about his appearance, including in insulting ways. Um, So the question, it should be funny, and it should make some good point. My favorite making fun of Kamala Harris uh, meme, which I'm going to put on the screen now, I suspect you'll agree with this one. Have you seen this one before? It's arresting the truant kids. Uh, Look at the glee in her eyes. Like, this is great, because she's a... And it's completely fair. Kamala Harris described herself. People are like, people like the guy in the video that you just saw will say things like, you're smearing Kamala as a cop. No, no, no. Kamala Harris referred to herself as California's top cop. If you think it's a smear to be called a cop, then you need to interrogate why you support someone who advances her draconian criminal justice policies like criminalizing the parents of truant kids instead of maybe taking a look at why it is that their kids aren't getting to school on time. Mm, Yeah, absolutely. All right, next week on Rising, uh, we're going to look up that guy who attacked Brianna and had him on the show. No, I'm just kidding. We'll probably not do that. Of course, we'll be discussing the latest in politics, but a more question, important question. Brianna, how are you feeling about the older cast making their debut on House of the Dragon next week? I cannot wait. We're so excited. I'm over some of these kids, i got to say. Yeah. I'm ready for the adults to come in. I thought they did a really good job. I'll miss um, the young woman playing Rhaenyra, but mm. uh, I'm also excited for uh, what's to come. Come. This is mostly what we talk about on the show before, uh, before, before, after, and during uh, taping. It's the actual important stuff. Maybe, maybe we'll have a, a, a House of the Dragon segment. We talk about Dungeons and, and Dragons sometimes. We talk about that too. All of your I interests, Robbie. Well, well, we can talk about your interests too. You never want to talk about Star Trek. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not a Trekkie. That's that's the real, real partisan bias here. Yeah, I have a I have a nerd void when it comes to Star Trek. Well, we'll try to fill that. Um, but until then, be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen to this pratter while you're on the go, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts, and you can catch us on the Plex TV app. Take care. See you next week. See ya.